Well, good morning and welcome, everybody. Thank you um, to Encounter Church. This is part three of a four-part series called Unbreakable, where we are highlighting the unbreakable faith that God has gifted his servant Ruth in the Old Testament of the Bible. Um, we said at the very, very beginning of this series that uh, the Bible is one of the most honest books around, and I think the story of Ruth is one of the most honest stories in the most honest book that we have. This uh, story is an, it's an incredible story about one woman's perseverance uh, throughout thick and thin, through plenty and want, death and life. If you're just joining us for the series, and I hope many of you are, um, I just want to kind of catch you up to pace a little bit. The story takes place in ancient Bethlehem in Israel, where one woman, Naomi, whom the book really should be named after because she's one of the uh, common characters in it, most often referenced. But Naomi, she's married to Elimelech. She's got two sons. She moves away from Bethlehem, Israel, and she moves to a foreign country called Moab. And it's in Moab that, like, severe tragedy strikes. In Moab, her husband, Elimelech, her two sons get married, and then the two sons die. So she moves back to Bethlehem in Israel now without her husband, without her two sons, and just her daughter-in-law, Ruth. There's a theme throughout the book of Ruth that comes up again and again and again. That, that uh, Naomi, she went, away em- she went away full, became empty, and came back. So there's like fullness and emptiness, emptiness, and fullness. And it's there that I think I want to like pick up like an on-ramp into maybe how this story, this ancient story, could affect your week ahead, maybe even your month, year, or lifetime up ahead. Because, because isn't it true that people do some pretty wild, some pretty bizarre, even some pretty dangerous things when they sense that there's a part of their life that's missing? I want to kind of bring a little illustration for you here today. Um, Sometimes in life, we experience, it's not like everything is moving against us like in Naomi, but we might experience life as something like half full or maybe three quarters full. Or some of you might be sensing like the blessed life where things go so well, so tremendously unbelievable that you're like, it's 90% there. But it's that last, like, 10% that I want to highlight for us this morning that people do some pretty extreme things in order to cap their life off that last maybe 20, that last maybe 10%. I think that it's that last 10% that drives already Hall of Fame-bound athletes to use PEDs, performance-enhancing drugs, in like the twilight of their career. And you're going, why would anybody do that? He was such a good player from the get-go, he could have made it on his merits alone. But it's not enough. It's like that last 10% just drove him to some pretty dangerous, to some pretty bizarre extremes. People who live and reside in the corner office at work, and they have everything going for them, I mean, they're like a top sales executive for the company, and they've been that way for a long time. And they're long, well, you're wondering, like, why would they fudge the sales reports on the, on the last quarter that they have? And it's like that last 10% of meaning, that last 10% of the, what's missing in life drives us to do some pretty extreme, even dangerous, and unwise things. It's that last 10%, I think, that drives someone who's already an honor roll student or a dean's list student to write down the answers on her hand 
or on her phone or track down her previous version of the test or do whatever. And you're going, why? She was so smart. She was so capable on her own. But it's that last 10% that I needed to add a value to my life, to assign meaning to my life so that I could look myself in the mirror and say, no, 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 I'm full After being a pastor now for 10 years, I have walked with people, walked with many of you, walked with others through journeys of throwing away such a rich life, just chasing after that last 10%. This is why people, this is why people in perfectly good and for the most part, happy marriages step out on their husbands, step out on their wives, because there's something perceived that's missing that I need to fill that last 10%. 10%. And we go to some pretty dangerous, some pretty far extremes in order to fill that gap in our lives. The story of Naomi and Ruth this morning is a story not so much about a woman who's trying to complete and fill the last 10%. This is a story where she's trying to fill everything. Because she's going, listen, I was a full, complete human being with my husband and with my two sons when I went away. And 10 years later, when I came back, I came back a broken, old, poor widow. And I have nothing. And we're going to see her go to some far extremes, some bizarre extremes in order to like make up the gap that is the fullness of her whole life. So let's pick up the story. It's part three. So we're in chapter three of the book of Ruth. I want to invite you to follow along by picking up the Bibles in the chair, underneath the chair in front of you. But the words are going to be also on the screen behind me. And we're phone friendly. So if you want to flip to it on your Bible app, that's awesome too. Okay. We're going to start off this story. And Ruth and Boaz, remember last week, had this kind of like meet cute. And he was kind of giving her eyes. And they sort of like half like, okay, there's maybe something that's happening here. And today we're going to see a little bit more of what happens here. This is Naomi now. Okay. Uh, Ruth 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well And provided for. Like, hang on a second. Because the plan that Naomi is embarking on is one of saying, you know, we have a good thing going. Uh, You're 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 gleaning, which means that you're walking past, uh, picking up the scraps that are left over behind the harvesters. And you're you're doing a good job of that. And and as long as it's harvest season, this is a really good thing to do. But we have food to eat for today. When harvest season is done... We're not going to have anything to eat. We've been living like hand to mouth this whole time. And and I'm just worried about what we're going to do in the off season. And so she embarks on this plan, Naomi, of saying, uh, okay, uh, essentially her life philosophy for Ruth and for her survival is this. um, Glean the field of Boaz and we will eat for a day. But if we could lock Boaz down and get him to put a ring on that, we're going to eat for a lifetime. This is her plan. And it's going to, we're going to see, it's going to take her to some pretty far extremes that I'm not sure any of us are going to be advocating for. And it's a weird story. It's a bizarre story. The more we read into it, the weirder and the more bizarre and quite honestly, uncomfortable it's going to get. But listen to me, this is going to be a hundred times more uncomfortable for me than it is for you because I'm on the stage with the microphone and you can just listen and disagree if you want to. That's fine. But we're going to continue on the stories. <clears throat> Verse 2. 
Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours, Naomi says. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. The storyteller wants to set the scene for us because winnowing, threshing, the harvest process was a long, extraordinary labor-intensive process. I mean, you had to cut the wheat down. You'd have to like bind it all up, move it over to the threshing floor, which is this massively open, flat area where it was windy. Crush, probably not like this with your foot, um, the, the kernels, and then you'd throw everything up in the air when the wind is blowing, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and the wheat would fall down, and then you'd like bag it all up and store it. The winnowing part of that process is the last, one of the last steps before you'd store it and eventually sell it throughout the year in order to have something to eat. I want us to see what the storyteller is trying to set. It's a a celebration scene. Keep in mind, they have gone through 10 years about of famine where they were harvesting, but there was like nothing to harvest. They'd sit down for meals, but there was like nothing to eat. They'd open up their bank account, but there was nothing in there. They have gone in want. They have gone without for 10 years. And like, finally, there's something to harvest. Finally, there's something to eat. And there's like celebration time at the very end of this process. They're winnowing. They're throwing it up. They're bagging it up. They're storing it. Maybe they'll, they'll sell a little bit. I want us to see that on the threshing floor, there's a whole bunch of dudes who are celebrating. They're happy. They're just about to get paid. Any of you who have lived in a house or maybe you've had a job where it's 100% commission-based, you know the power of like when the sale finally closes. Or maybe you are a farmer and you work all year long and you don't know what the haul is going to be exactly, but then you do. Now imagine 10 years of not having a sale or 10 years of not having a harvest and then you do. I submit to you, there's music, there's dancing, there's laughter, there's joy in a place that has not seen a lot of joy, which just accentuates it that much more. These guys are elated. And it's this scene that Naomi wants to send her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Here's her plan. Parents, if you're looking for dating advice to give to your kids, maybe get out your pens. I don't know. Listen. Verse 3. She goes, okay, Naomi, Ruth, Wash, because we don't do that very much back then. (laughs) Put on perfume, so you smell real nice, and get dressed in your best clothes. The really cute one, probably with all the cutouts. How many parents are a little uncomfortable with it? Don't raise your hand, like you don't have to, right? But like we're reading this thing and, oh, really? Like this is the the dating advice you're going to give to your, not daughter, but daughter-in-law. Like this is really kind of disturbingly uncomfortable dating advice. She continues, it gets worse, not better. Uh, Then, when you've got the perfume, you recently showered, and you're wearing that cute dress, uh, then go down to the threshing floor, the party scene. But don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go over and uncover his... Now, it says feet here, but in Daniel, uh, another book of the Bible, that same word is used, except for it's translated there as legs. So, context, uncover his feet or legs or, you know, something at the bottom half of his body and lie down. And then he will tell you what to do. I bet he will. (laughs) Right? 
That's what I love about the Bible, okay? It's Bible, so don't blame me. It's in it. We're going through Ruth. This is a story that we're going to look at and say, on the outset, couple observations. The first one is there's a difference between the prescriptive books and parts of the Bible and the descriptive books and parts of the Bible. So like as a doctor would prescribe medicine for the health and healing of uh, her or his patient, so too God prescribes a certain way of life for his people. The prescriptive parts of the Bible are like, um, do not steal, do not lie, love your neighbor, care for the widow, the poor orphan, uh, the alien within your gates. The prescriptive parts of the Bible are the parts where God says, forgive one another, bear with one another. The descriptive parts of the Bible are like when King David on his patio looks over and there's a naked woman bathing named Bathsheba. And he says, oh, I'd like to meet her. Not advocating it, simply describing the events that took place in that context is a way of saying this is the beginning of the biggest mistake of his life. I just wanted to see what we have here. This is not like God advocating this for you. I'm like, it's in the Bible. So yeah, Solomon also had 300 wives. Not a good plan. Just saying this is what happened. Now it's really uncomfortable like dating advice from mom to daughter-in-law. So I'm not going to advocate that. We're not like coming back around that. In fact, um, a lot of people are looking at this passage and uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, what in the world does this mean? Why is this in the Bible? So I'm like reading about it earlier the week and uh, just reading all over on this thing. And so I just want to say that uh, the perspectives on what this means and what this could be about, I mean, even the experts on the book of Ruth are all over the place. So if you don't like what you hear today, and you're like, oh, Dirk is totally messed up. That's not at all. I'm just not going to buy any of that. That's fine. You've got plenty of company that are support whatever other reading that you've got of it. That's okay. But I want to come back and say these two guys, or these two uh, like uh, scholarly kind of expert advice, looks at this story and going, why did she do it? Okay, they kind of separate into two camps. Number one, either Naomi, mother-in-law, had a tremendously high view of the character of Boaz, knowing that he would resist any temptation that comes his way, or maybe and she had a tremendously low regard for the holiness of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And, and we're not really sure as the story unfolds, and to be honest, by the end of the story, we're not really sure what the plan overall perspective of uh, Naomi, the mother-in-law, is all about. We're not really sure why she gives this terrible, terrible advice to her daughter-in-law. Advice that is pretty extreme way to fill in the gap that is missing in their own lives. Uh, I like what one person said is maybe it's deliberately ambiguous so that we would discuss it more. We would debate it more. Maybe so that you would go home and in your small groups or in your families, maybe over lunch when you're enjoying some roast pastor. I don't know but you'd have something to talk about. But the question of which is it? A high view of Boaz's character or a low view of Ruth's holiness? I, I think the point is simply that people do some pretty extreme, dangerous, and self-destructive things in order to fill in that last gap in their life. And that's why we do it. We want to force it. We want to short it. We want to cut the corners. 
We want it now. It's bad advice. But I want us to see, regardless of the outcome of the story, regardless of what Ruth does with the advice, regardless with what Boaz does with what Ruth does, I want us to see this whole layer of the story that is simply put forward to say, church, God is gracious anyway. Whatever she does in response to this unwise words of her mother-in-law, Naomi, a person who is in her life to show her the way of God, God is gracious anyway. Some of you have seen temptation. Some of you have given into temptation. Some of you will. Regardless of where you are or the spiritual maturity that you have, I simply want to offer that when it comes to screwing up and following up, when it comes to messing up, mistaking, and just plain sinning, everybody has and everybody will. And when we do, God is gracious anyway. But it gets better. Because if anything ever good comes out of the mistakes in the lives that we've lived, if anything good happens, it wasn't because what we did was good. It's only and solely the fact that God is good. And good God promised to weave good things into the good lives of those who love him. And so if you're looking at it and going, I know people who made mistakes and they seemed just fine. If anything good happens, it's because God is good, not because it was good. And God is promising to weave good into the good lives of those who love him. God is gracious anyway. Now for Ruth... We have this question of what's she going to do? But for them, it wasn't so much of a question. Because remember part one in this series is that we said that Ruth is a Moabite. We're constantly reminded she's a Moabite because of the compromising past that she had. Uh, Moabites got started in a bad place uh, physically, and they never really recovered from then. And so they carried along with a certain, a certain reputation And the certain reputation that Moabite girls had made them very, very appealing and interesting to Moabite or to Hebrew boys because they grew up under a different system. I just want us to see that for Ruth, this wasn't bad advice. This wasn't unusual advice at all. This is, in fact, the exact kind of advice that she's used to mothers giving daughters and mother-in-laws giving daughter-in-laws when their backs are up against the wall. This is the sort of thing that's sort of expected for someone like Ruth, whereas she is from Moab. So, so we kind of know she's going she's gonna to fall in line and she's going to follow along. And, and that's where things get interesting. Verse five, she crawls in, tell me what to do. All right, that's where we pick it up. Verse five, I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor, the party scene, and did everything, every, <clears throat> everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, pun intended, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile where the lines of sight were obstructed from everybody else around. I'm adding a few things. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet or maybe legs, but it was definitely the bottom half, and lay down. In the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. I'm I'm so immature. I can't even like get through this. Hopefully you're better. (laughs) 
And he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. It's dark out after all. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. And then she said, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So, so what she's uh, proposing to him is, uh, is saying there's this guardian redeemer that was uh, an Old Testament law prescription by God to say, hey, if somebody dies, like if a husband dies, there's no one to take care of the widow, the family, the property, everything. A kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer, somebody else from that husband's family would step in and provide for the widow and for the family and for the property and so that, so that their lives wouldn't be in danger. And so she's saying, Ruth is saying, hey, hey, you're a guardian redeemer to, to take care of me. Essentially, she's saying, spread your, the corner of your robe over me, which is this fun kind of play on words that I just love in the Bible that you start to see these things all around. Last week in part two, we saw that, that Ruth, you know, what did she have to offer? She was humble, maybe she was industrious, but really not any of those things. The only thing she had to offer was a simple fact that she hid under the wing of God, that, that, she, that, that, that she found favor in God's eyes first in chapter two. And, and now in chapter three, it's interesting that she says, spread the corner of your robe over me. Fun to note that in Hebrew, the language that this was written in, that's actually the same word, wing and corner. So she's first looking to be under the wing or corner, the kanaf in Hebrew of God. And secondly, she's looking to be under the protection or the wing, the kanaf of her husband. And we said there's like a biblical order to this, where we have an allegiance and obedience to God first, to our husband's wives second, to our kids third, to our jobs, careers, callings, all the other stuff last after that. And we move these order around. That's when we kind of get into some trouble a little bit. But this is Ruth saying, no, no, I've got it figured out. I know how this thing is supposed to go. Spread your corner over me. She's proposing to him, which I think is kind of interesting. Because, let's be honest, you hear a story today uh, where she proposes to him, and it kind of like, oh, I didn't expect that one. I mean, by today's standard, that's, that's like a little bit progressive, by ancient Middle Eastern standards, not exactly an area of the world known for being the epicenter of progression, that's unheard of. That's like paradigm shifting. That's like moving everything. That like, wait, what? You can do that? Well, she did. And so, okay, last week, I made a comment about how, um, like, a lot of our church is uh, probably single, and so, like, and it made, I just started rattling off these dating apps. And I said, like, hey, a Christian single, or Match.com, or Coffee Makes Bagel, or Bumble, like, whatever the, th the app is, there's, like, a lot of them. And so I got some questions midweek throughout that, like, hey, you kind of just referenced that, but, like, you know, what do you think about, like, dating apps for Christians? Like, should we? And I'm like, most of the weddings that I officiate, they either met at a bar uh, at a church small group uh, or connecting event, or maybe like a dating app when I see those a uh, fair amount. And I just want to say that in order to like get yourself in front of somebody else, which is like what Ruth is doing here, she's getting herself in front of Boaz, like of the options in front of us, I really don't think a dating app is the worst one of them bar, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, like, just because it's a little unconventional, like, whatever she does, she gets herself in front of Boaz. And that's, 
And, and, and that's like kind of a tertiary point, but since we brought this up and we're like down this road, a few more comments, stick with me. Um, we did a survey back in November. Thank you, by the way, for taking that survey. We had like a 98% return rate. It was unbelievably, mostly because we locked the doors and we said you can't leave until you take the survey. But there was like a, and, a, and it kind of measured like demographic. We didn't really lock the doors. Demographics and like spiritual depth. And, and there was a lot of honesty. And so again, I thank you for that. One of the things that we found, particularly on the demographic side of things, is that among people who are here on any given weekend during the school year is that 66% of our church is in between the ages of 18 and 29. Like, two-thirds of the church is between 18 and 29. So I just want to say, if you are not in that window, if you're not in that 18 to 29 window, and you're like, not the place for me, I'm out. Please don't leave. <laughs> your perspective, your giftedness is badly needed and underrepresented here. Please, shoulder to shoulder, let's dig in, let's get to work. Um, for the rest of the church, I want to also highlight another stat in America that the average age of getting married is something like 28 and a half, which probably suggests that the vast majority of people in the room today or listening, watching online are single. And you might have kind of some questions about what it means to steward your singleness well. And it's just interesting to me in this part, in this story where we have, in my mind right now, one of the only stories where we have everybody in the Old Testament story is deliberately and called out as single. We have Naomi, who's an elderly widowed single person. We have Ruth, who's probably in her mid to late 20s as a single uh, woman. And then Boaz, who's probably in his late 30s to 40s single man. And so it's just interesting to like highlight for singleness uh, this story of Ruth. And I think that there's a lot here. And if you're kind of from that perspective, and you've probably been asking yourself the question, see if I can like read any minds in the room here, as I'm reading the story about Ruth like, like sneaking into Boaz and like uncovering his, is it feet or is it legs or is it any, I don't know, right? And as I'm reading the story, I'm like, this is like shady as all get out, right? This is an interesting story. Um, is it true that in the back of your mind, there's a little bit like, did they cross the line? Like, I know it's Bible, but it's also descriptive. And there's a lot of mistakes in the Bible. Did they like cross the line? And then it kind of leads into the inevitable question, especially because what we said earlier is the writers of this thing may have written it deliberately not to tell you whether they crossed their line so that you can talk about it in your small group on the way home. Did they cross the line? The question after that is often that follows, where is the line anyway? Where is the line that they may have crossed? And so I just want to, I guess, address that a little bit. Because something that we do, Christian leaders, I'm like owning this as a, as a leader of a church, like what we do often, because it, it's easily remembered and it works well for parenting, is what we say is, this is okay and encouraged. This is a little fuzzy and I'm not really sure. But this is bad. Don't do this. This is wrong. This is messed up. This is dirty. This is just, just stay away from this. And that's like the message that we hear our whole lives, like reinforced, okay, murky, and wrong. 
Again and again, okay, murky wrong, okay, murky wrong. And that's like everything that's cast to us all the time. And then something happens, you know? She's wearing a nice white dress and walking down the aisle and family and friends are there. Or you're in Vegas and there's like an Elvis standing there or something like that, I don't know. But like you say your I do's and then all of a sudden the whole world changes, doesn't it? And it goes from like, okay, murky, wrong to like, great, okay, super. This is beautiful and something to be enjoyed. And you're like, I have whiplash from the 180 that we just pulled in a matter of literal minutes. What happened to the line? And it's kind of confusing that way. And so I just want to address that a little bit and say, maybe, maybe the question isn't so much about where is the line? Because I think when we open up the Bible and we start authentically reading the word of God, what we're going to see is that God consistently is less interested both in this issue and also basically every issue with where, with not where is the line, but God is much more interested in what is the time. See, what God does is he steps out of that, here's the line, do this, don't do this, entirely. And he steps back from all of that and says, like, the question is not where is the line, but what is the time? Funny story. When I was, uh, when I was a kid, I went to a Christian school, and uh, the kids got to pick out their devotionals. Like, each kid took a turn before lunchtime to, like, read a part of the Bible. It was like third grade or something. And we actually had a rule that you were not allowed to read Song of Songs as like your Bible passage, which knowing who I am today and probably who I was as a third grader is a good rule for schools and churches to have. Uh, It's very distracting that way. But like looking back on that, maybe now as an adult, you may have picked up uh, a Bible and you may have started reading the eight chapters of Song of Songs and you found like it's really an interesting book. It's a love song. It's a poem. It's kind of like about these, this cute uh, romantic comedy maybe of these missed connections. We should do a series. Anyway, okay. <laughs> and then they finally are together in the end. But like repeated as a theme throughout the book of Song of Songs is this line, do not arouse love before it's time. Do not arouse love before it's ready. Which I think is a really helpful line as we consider, did they cross the line? And God goes, no, 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 it's not about the line. It's about the time. Because when we step back from that and we say, it's not about the line, it's about the time, then we can say, this is good and worth celebrating. And this is good and worth celebrating. And this is good and worth celebrating in the right time. In which the follow-up should be, how do I know when it's time? And I'll share from a biblical perspective, but also just some observations of 10 years of doing ministry. In your friend's parents' basement when they're not around is not the time. In your apartment, when your roommate is at work, is not the time. I think the Bible pretty clearly lays out in Genesis chapter 2, because God knew that we would be interested in this, and so he put it right in the beginning. And then Jesus picks it up because he knew that we would read the red letters. And then Paul picks it up because he's a little angsty, and some of us need that too. Repeated throughout, the time is when a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And so if we take a step back and say that it's not about the line, it's about the time. And then the question is, did they leave father and mother 
And are they clinging to me or am I clinging to her? Did I leave? Did she leave? That's the time. And I think we know that in the covenant of marriage. That's the time that we have that we say, yes. On top of that, Christians often have this reputation of obsessing over wondering when the line is instead of wondering when the time is. And so what happens is that Christians out there in the world, if you say that you're a Jesus follower, you might be heaped condemnation on. And you should just be ready for that, quite honestly. Because people will say that you're closed-minded, or people will say that you're old-fashioned, or people will say all kinds of things about the decisions based on the commitments and the convictions that you have. And one of the underlying themes towards the vast majority of it all is to say that your God is simply trying to rob you of your God-given freedom. Because you should have a certain capacity to make your own decisions, and now you can't do that anymore. And so I just like encourage you to consider that when Jesus came, he didn't come preaching a gospel of restricting our freedom, but guiding it. He made us, he made the universe. Presumably he knows how we ought to function in that universe. And so I want to simply offer that maybe he didn't come in order to restrict our freedom, but to, but to protect our joy. That when Jesus came in John 10, 10, he said, I came that they may have life and have it, he says, to the fullest. That's why I actually came, because he knew that we couldn't fill this in on our own, and we would go to some pretty wild extremes, some even dangerous, self-defeating extremes, in order to complete our fullness or our meeting, according to ourselves, all by ourselves. And he wanted to rescue us from that. As a way of saying, I will protect your joy, I will give you some guidelines so that you can live life to the fullest amount possible in my name. So Ruth sneaks in to the, uh, under the, the tent of here of Boaz while he's camping and he's got a couple in him, right? And, uh, and one commentator or one, uh, one person in, uh, about this passage said, I love this so much. He goes, uh, Boaz, we have no indication he's ever been with a woman, ever, no indication he's ever, uh, he's ever been married before. Right? And so he's this kind of like early or middle-aged guy who owns this field. And, uh, and he says, Ruth, whom we know he's somewhat interested in because they've been making eyes at each other, um, sneaks in here by his feet or his legs. And he goes, do you know the kind of man who is tempted by a woman like Ruth? One that is breathing. <laughs> the level of temptation here for boys, what's going to happen next? This is what we got. She sneaks in there. Remember, he's camping. He's got a couple in him. She goes, tell me what to do. And this is what he says. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do all you ask. All the people of my town that you are, um, all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of my family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Boaz is a good guy. He resists temptation which I think is an important point in and of itself because he not only resists temptation, he also has a habit of resisting temptation. 
And so there's like this, whether it's his downlines, his employees that we heard about last week, we heard about this guy who, who resists temptation, who's tested again and again and again, that eventually his test becomes his testimony. So that as people look at him and going, wow, what an incredible guy. What an incredible guy. It's like he has this way of deflecting that glory or that praise to him and saying, no, no, I had help. You know, this was an inside job. And the more he is tested, the more it becomes his testimony, his way of giving glory to his God. The things that he resisted in the story, number one, Ruth just sneaking right in there by his feet or legs. Um, number two in this story is this temptation to say, whoa, whoa, no, 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 Ruth, you got to get out of here because it's like 3 a.m. and it's dangerous out there. He, he doesn't do that. And, and another thing is like, you can stay here, that's fine. He doesn't do that because, because he doesn't want her reputation to be tarnished. No, he finds a way through all of this. So you can maintain her safety, maintain her reputation, maintain his own holiness. He finds a way throughout all of this. And even he goes, there's another kinsman redeemer, a relative. You know, cousin Larry is actually closer than I am right now. Let me go talk to him because that's how good of a guy I am. Even though I want to marry you, I have to talk and get his blessing first. So, so like, let me go talk to him and then come back. Boaz is an incredibly good guy. I think that happens as a result from a series of tests and temptations that God withstands in you. If you leave today and you find yourself tested and tempted, I want you to hear that God may be having a purpose and a reason behind it because he's shaping you and he's forming you and that process isn't always easy or fail-safe. But he's shaping you and he's forming you so that this test could become a testimony to give glory, to give honor, to give praise to your Father in heaven. But it gets better. Because he sends Ruth home and he doesn't just send her home with a story. She sends Ruth home to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And keep in mind, she's been out all night, so you know Naomi is like, how did it go? I want details. No. Ruth comes up to Naomi, tells the story, and ends this way in verse 17. Boaz gave me six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Church, do you know how much six measures of barley is? Of course not. Why would you? I had to look it up. It's 80 pounds. It's about as much as she could handle. Maybe he sent her with an animal, a donkey or something like that to bring it all. Because what's the theme? What's the problem? He doesn't give it to Ruth. Ruth isn't the one who's empty. He gives it so that when Ruth goes home, she won't go home empty-handed to Naomi because Naomi is empty. And Boaz is promising these 80 pounds of barley, which church is a lot of barley, of saying, may your pantry be full today. And may you read that as a sign that this is a down payment and a pledge that I will stand in that gap and I will make sure that your pantry will never be empty again. I think Boaz is standing in that gap and he's saying, Naomi, you don't need to. Naomi, you're trying to force that last 10% or maybe that first 100%. Naomi, you're working so hard, and I want to tell you, you don't need to anymore. 
Because Boaz, because Christ is standing in that gap and going, I got you. I didn't come so that you could be forgiven 90% of the way and try to squeeze in the last 10%, taking on unbelievably dangerous and self-defeating behaviors in order to make it there. I didn't come for that kind of life. I came that you may have life and have it to the fullest. Naomi, church, Dirk, you and I, he came that he would fill us all the way up. And he's saying, I got this. This right here, this is my job, not yours. Let me fill you. So I want to offer you a challenge as you go out of this place this week. Do it for today. And if you find it helpful, do it for the week and then the month and maybe the year and maybe your life. But to step off that track of you trying to find your own meaning and your own fulfillment and to fill yourself by yourself. Step off that and simply say to God, you came to provide fullness. My job is simply obedience. Obedience is my responsibility. Outcome is God's. Christ, Boaz, modeled this. Jesus didn't want to go to death. Take this cup from me. But obedience is my responsibility. Outcome is God's. And I think that what you're going to find is stepping off that track isn't limiting, isn't restricting our freedom in the least bit. I think that what you're going to find is that it's actually Entirely freeing. Because I don't have to be worried about the outcome. I don't have to be worrying about grinding and cheating and cutting corners and rushing and solving. I don't have to be in charge of the outcome at all. Because obedience is what's expected and asked of me. And God already promised his favor and his outcome. Obedience is my responsibility. Outcome is God's. Church, I want to invite you to stand up and let's pray together to that God this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, some of us in the room right now are suffering under extreme testing and repeated temptation. God, whatever it is, Spirit, I ask that you highlight a little bit of that struggle to us so that we can see that you're in it and you're through it and you haven't left us and you won't forsake us that you've asked us simply for obedience, that we don't have to have the answers, we don't have to provide the outcomes, God, that you have that. God, we pray that throughout the survival of the testing and even the thriving, that you provide us with a testimony so that when people look at us and the decisions that we make and the lives that we live, they'll say there's something about him, there's something about her. I think they had help. And God, may you be known in those moments. God, you're here with us. Sometimes you're pressing. Sometimes you're pushing. But you're always here. And we're blessed by it. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.